with the inception and traction that blockchain and crypto has gathered, the world is possibly on the verge of the largest evolution since the mainstream of the internet. Given the fluidity and dynamic nature of this technology, business leaders, enthusiasts, and veterans all need to band together to navigate the current and upcoming storms. Participants in Web 3.0 want a trusted resource that gives them pertinent information about projects, tokens, technology, and businesses. We are business people talking the business of crypto. We are Y Whales. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, Y Whales, wherever you are in the world today. So it's March 9th. Uh, Bitcoin is doing its its slow uh, slow digression down uh, into into twenty thousand uh, dollars. We'll see if it hits nineteen. But you know, let's be clear: there's absolutely nothing good in the news this week uh, from the financial markets, uh, and and so that has a lot more to do with why Bitcoin's dropping. Uh, I just returned last week from ETH Denver, and I want to say just as a as a quick note, uh, there is absolutely no crypto winter there. Uh, the rate of innovation, the number of developers, the number of kind of interested parties there was absolutely just fabulous to see. Um, really exciting. I, I, I got to say, I didn't really see much innovation. Um, I saw a lot of you know copying. Um, you know, here's here's something that's mildly innovative, and then you know here's twenty clones of it. So I, I wasn't, I didn't come away extremely impressed uh, from from kind of the uh, light years of of moving the asset class forward. But again, there's a, there was a lot of interest. There was a lot of innovation. There was a lot of things that were happening there. So I, I really want to kind of you know say we're not in the winter. We're certainly in a bear. Um, but but there's quite a lot of blockchain uh, dev work happening. Uh, with me today is is Mike from 3DM, and I think he can absolutely relate uh, with kind of those thoughts a little bit. You guys are are very much Web three. You're working on a number of protocols. But before we get into kind of what you do today, Mike, if you wouldn't mind, uh, let's start off with the audience of kind of where you came from and how you got here today. Yeah, sure. Uh, thank you so much for having me on the show. And I. Started my early, early career, uh, first job out of school, walked straight into a sales opportunity. Uh, so I had originally studied politics. I moved to Washington, D.C. and wanted to work on Capitol Hill and change the world. I uh, quickly realized you cannot do that <laughs> working as a staffer on Capitol Hill. So got a sales job um, with Berkshire Hathaway's Business Wire. So stepped right into... The world of uh, news, media, public relations, investor relations. Uh, at the time, the big topic of the markets was really focused on the use of social media for uh, disclosure purposes. So you had the uh, CEO of Sun Microsystems, Jonathan Schwartz, tweeting out his earnings release and the SEC saying, no, you can't use Twitter for that. And he's saying, watch me. Uh, and he would tweet out his earnings release in what became called notice and access, uh, which really disrupted the overall financial disclosure market. And what I mean by that is the news ecosystem around financial and regulatory markets. Uh, so I had a front row seat to what was happening here in Washington, D.C. Um, I left... Uh, Real quick it. on that note, if you would mind, explain uh, to any viewers that may not understand how big of a deal that was, um, because the markets had pri previous to that been reliant on these, you know, time disclosures of these sure. these 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 board calls and everything else that they would listen into. Yeah, it's it's kind of interesting to think that like 
Tesla's earnings call has now become uh, kind of a media event. But if you rewind, really not more than 10 years ago, mm-hmm. those were uh, sort of closed door private sessions. You had to be a shareholder in order to get the invite. It wasn't really widely disclosed because to your point and the reason of its significance is there was a uh, sort of an industrial complex around these companies that Thomson Reuters comes to mind. You know, you, yeah. everyone has probably heard that name, but the way that uh, the 10K filing got submitted into the Edgar database, which was the official retrieval system for these quarterly filings, there was a whole system around it. Yeah. And it, so it, the moment social media comes on the scene and you've got CEOs tweeting out their earnings, it circumnavigated all of that system. Yeah, and it, and it was a major disruption to the market because if you suddenly have inside information that that uh, you know earnings are up, um, you know then then it's it's the first mover. And before this, as you said, there was a regular scheduled program. At at nine oh one, the the conference will start. At nine ten right. is the the time that the earnings will be announced. And at nine eleven, everyone's going to be trading. And so I love that 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 comparison just gave us some disruptive technology that we take for granted today. Um, that that actually had um, you know while nobody thought of Twitter as being a financial financial tool, um, it it did really shape the markets. And it's interesting that you were right there to watch that happen. Yeah. So that that kind of is a good segue. Uh, I left Business Wire. I went to my largest client at the time was a publicly traded defense contractor here in Washington, D.C. that was standing up uh, uh, a global digital marketing team. So long story short is this is really where I learned the ins and outs of uh, not just social media marketing, but doing some of the first integrations of Eloqua and Salesforce and what have now become uh, marketing automation platforms where those things were hard-coded. So I spent about three years uh, at, inside of Computer Sciences Corporation, uh, now DXC Technologies, mm-hmm. uh, doing a bunch of systems integration. I was running the global digital marketing team. I stood up some uh, employee advocacy programs based in my expertise and knowledge over the prior six years uh, in working in the social media space. Uh, I left CSC, and uh, this is really that combination of the social digital marketing world and that financial regulatory world. I uh, started out as the social media manager at Navy Federal Credit Union. Uh, By the time I left, I was running the entire digital marketing team. Mm. Uh, So email, web, uh, and the social media channels, including the uh, customer service component of the social media channel, which... I really helped stand up. Um, that was some great learnings for me being inside of a financial institution now working uh, on the other side of how to use these t- tools and channels to to communicate. And, and the thing that's interesting about that is, you know, there's a lot of marketing people that make their way over into Web three or Web two. They just, you know, kind of transition over from from marketing to to products or or you know that type of thing. And you know, but when you're marketing either financial or medical products, um, there's a lot of a lot of rails around yeah. what you can do and why. And and I think that you having that that I think that's where this is going to become a very interesting conversation here shortly, because um, having that that knowledge and that kind of institutional uh, guide rails that are in your head of like this is what I want to do, but can I legally do it? And that's not a question that a lot of people in Web three ask: is can I? Um, it's it's generally asked for forgiveness later, and and right now Ginsler is making ever, very clear that's not a good strategy. We'll we'll get back to the SEC for sure because um, <laughs> I have a I have some good 
good takes there. And in fact, you know, some of the systems and uh, campaigns that I stood up at Navy Federal, I ran one of the first UGC campaigns with a hashtag in an NFL commercial. So Hmm. it was one of the first, uh, it was called hashtag join the family. uh, And it was a Navy Federal commercial that ran the hashtag with a call to action to join, uh, share a photo and uh, tell us how you became a member of the credit union. Simple, straightforward campaign, you'd think, except uh, UGC campaigns, credit union, financial institution, do you own the right to reshare the photo? Mm. Uh, so I worked with the technology community and I found, and I worked with and made friends with, uh, the compliance team inside of the credit union. And I found a way to do, uh, sort of double opt-in permission, gain mm. permission from the person as they share it so that you now have a marketing asset. And the whole point there is, I I think I do see myself very much as a tech innovator, uh, as a technologist when it comes to marketing, and also, to your point, aware of um, how businesses have to operate within some construct of a legal framework in order to mm-hmm. protect themselves and sometimes to protect their customers. So, yeah, I learned a lot uh, working inside of a financial institution rooted in the military, trying to drive... Uh, social and digital innovation. Yeah, that 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 was a PhD in, in and of itself. I always say that we're defined by our ten thousand hours, and and um, that that's certainly one of those educations that's just unparalleled in, in this upcoming world. Yeah. So i I had stayed in good uh, uh, good connection with the uh, then CFO of Business Wire and then an incoming CEO. So Kathy Baron Tamrez had retired. There was a new CEO coming into Business Wire where I had started my career, learned all of that financial regulation. Uh, they had watched me, uh, go on to the, the stents that I just described. Uh, and I had an opportunity to come back to Business Wire as the vice president of digital strategy, running, uh, essentially a global uh, digital marketing team designed to support the sales engine. And at that time, uh, the market had completely changed. Social mm-hmm. media had become the norm. Uh, businesses were looking for new and interactive ways to create news, video, uh, you know, transcribing of those earnings releases into short form content uh, was just becoming a thing that people were doing. Um, so, I was looking for new products, new ways to reinvent a, you know, a 60, 70 year old company, uh, thinking about interactive media and how could you make the press release come alive? Uh, people had talked about the social media press release back in the day. I was mm-hmm. trying to think of what is the new, uh, sort of maybe at the time I wasn't calling it this, but the web three press release, yeah. uh, because what it ultimately led me to was 3 dm So I had come back to business wire. I was studying what was cutting edge on the web. I've built, uh, dozens and dozens of websites. I've seen everything on the internet that there is to see. And here comes 3 dm uh, introduced to me from a mentor of mine. Um, and, the, the best way to describe uh, the introduction is somebody sent me a link to a 3D and augmented reality link that 3DM had published. I pulled it up on my phone and I I showed it to my son. Uh, I showed it to my then six-year-old son and he immediately put his fingers on my phone screen and swirled around this object 
And I didn't know that he knew that it did that. And I think as a, uh, an analyst of the market, as somebody who understands and deeply respects technology and the web and having seen everything on the internet, I knew immediately that uh, this was the new cutting edge of where the internet was going uh, into this new immersive world. Uh, at the time, nobody was calling it the metaverse, but here we are <laughs> in 2023. Yeah. And, and and I think we'd all like to stop calling it the metaverse now yes. that Zuckerberg has kind of stolen that name for us. We use, we use immersive technology uh, around here as much as we possibly can. Um, but I love that story and I, I love the thought, um, you know, just for people that don't understand, you know, most likely what Mike has been through, and Mike, please correct me if I'm wrong. But when you say you've built, you know, um, dozens, dozens, and dozens of websites, um, I'm going to best bet that these are enterprise level, you know, institution size websites correct. with, you know, generally six to eight figure budgets, right. um, depending on how big they are and, and massive teams and scales behind those. Oh yeah, absolutely. Um, uh, <laughs> the CSC website was built on a custom CMS. I think we probably had. Uh, close to a hundred thousand content pages. We're talking six zones in twelve languages. Uh, having gone through a full redesign, I worked with uh, MRM out of New York. Uh, so you're doing full scale content migration, full scale content design and migration. And yeah, um, there was no AI doing it. You were we were creating it. <laughs> People actually had to work, and they had to know what they were doing versus some script kitties that are that are bouncing around. So, but but the point on that is that you know when you're designing in Web One and Web Two, there's there's some common languages that even if you're building a, a, a custom CMS, um, a content management system, for those of you. <laughs> I don't know what that means. Um, if you're building these types of things, you still can bring on outside developers and they relatively understand what you're working on very quickly. And as long as it's you know notated right, um, you, you can scale up and down teams relatively well. The, the concept of this, this, that modular building approach that, that Mike's talking about is um, very hard to do. Um, if you, if you hire the wrong team that's coming in, you know, after, you know, the first team kind of builds the framework and the second team's going to be building something else. If they're not fully aligned, you end up with this mix, mix match bunch of garbage. Um, and it's a it, incredibly complex, incredibly hard symphony to create. Web three is, is, you know, kind of that, that evolutionary phase of so this modular approach that, that eventually we want to get to. So, you know, to hear uh, that you, you transition from, you know, web one to web two to now to, to web three, um, you know, there's a lot of institutional knowledge of, of how to build things at scale that I think most people take for granted, um, that, that these sites just exist and they're easy to do. They're not. Yeah. I mean, I'm going to take this at a couple levels um, and I'll bring it to the Web3 side of things because I love your description there of like this modularity that I think uh, even folks who have been in the Web3 blockchain space for a long time maybe take for granted in terms of these components of the wallet and the access and self-custody are all contained. But I'll start with, you know, when I first came into 3DM, uh, this was so two years uh, exactly now. I've been here 24 months. Um, I knew and looked under the hood at the software as a service approach that the team had taken to build out this 3D engine. And what I mean by that is exactly what you described that I wanted to ensure that there was scalability built into the product, that this was not a one off. Uh, sort of custom designed website that anybody could 
you know, with the right amount of computing power, you could put this beautiful 3D asset in augmented reality on a computer. But what if I need to do it a thousand times? Or what if mm-hmm. I need to do it a hundred thousand times? And I need to do it programmatically. I need it to be able to publish a skew across my web URLs by running a script. And I think that that approach is how I validated the tech um, to know that, yes, the scalability and it's really what is uh, and makes our platform so unique mm-hmm. is that that is the approach that the team took a headless API, you know, to get into some of the technical piece of that, that really allows us to plug into any system and be modular, be a part of that backend ecosystem to allow brands, retailers, individual creators to publish these immersive 3D and augmented reality experiences right on their e-commerce, right in their mobile website, use them on social media, publish them as display ads, et cetera. And I'll, I'll get into the cool stuff that we're doing, but I love the take there on the modularity. I think it applies to the software as a service approach in the tech um, and also why we are able to walk so comfortably into this web three space. It's been a natural, uh, a natural fit for us over the last two years. Yeah, I love that, and we'll we'll get to the 3DM here in a second. But you know, to, what I what I hear, and just to to regurgitate a little bit, is you, you spent millions and millions and millions of dollars building these you know these websites, these these custom CMSs, and everything else. And at the end of the day, your your content's unlocked. It's stuck in these. You you can't just easily take your content that you built, you own. It's your these are your words, your your videos, everything else that that your your clients built, and easily move them over to another platform. And because they're locked in that platform, it's that's the SaaS model. Like <laughs> right. you know, uh, 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 Salesforce has built an empire based on like you can leave. Good luck. Um, <laughs> you know, it's it's you're you're kind of stuck there. And so the idea that we can take the bits and pieces and the content that we provide, and if you if you're done with a single provider, you know, it it should be a couple clicks of the mouse, and you just migrate somewhere else. Um, we're not there, but but I I'm, I know enough about 3DM that suddenly we do have the ability to kind of modularize pieces of it now. As we and hopefully that's what something that will be unlocked here in the future is just that mass migration um, from you know Squarespace to uh, Wix or or you know somewhere else you know very very quickly um, you know without ton of code. Interoperability is the buzzword that everyone uses. What I'll say is, and I'll kind of dip back into my Web2 roots there for a moment, is having been a marketer and having built marketing campaigns and built followers on platforms like Periscope uh, and Meerkat that no longer exist. And thinking about that from a pure audience development perspective, um, you know, you can't take your audience with you from these platforms to platforms. You can't take your content with you between these platforms. You got to re-download, re-upload. But wait a second, that's mine. I own that content. That's my thing, whatever the thing is. Why can't I take it with me wherever I go? And that, I think, yeah, is exactly, it's exactly the approach that we're taking when it comes to uh, the tech that we are building in Web3 to allow brands to bring their products uh, and individual creators, anyone, (laughs) anyone to own their stuff. Uh, well, that's awesome. So let's dive right into it. So, so give us the elevator pitch for 3DM and, and uh, you know, what you guys have built so far. It's a proprietary 3D engine uh, allowing anyone, I I say brands, but anyone from uh, your global, global retailers down to an individual artist and creator 
to quickly and easily publish 3D and augmented reality on the web. Uh, and I can piece that apart, you know, as much as you want, but it's a, uh, it's a, um, it, it's, 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 it's an actual, yeah, it's an actual challenge. So, so behind me right here, you're, everyone's watching the little whales swimming, and um, and those are NFTs. They're they're actual full 3D GLBs uh, that live on a variety of chains. We deploy them onto multiple chains because we like to test and we like to know where they are. So they're currently on uh, Ethereum, Polygon, uh, Solana, and I think they're going to get rolled out to a couple others. Um, just kind of shows our ability to to work with that network, know that network. Um, but but I will say it's a, it's a challenge. Um, you know, GLB files are a new format. Not a lot of people understand how they work. How they, it's a single file that has the the skin, the the movements, the textures, um, and, as well as a number much of other data. And while we say it's a standard, it's really not. Um, you know, I, there's times we try to import GLBs uh, that we get from other sources and they don't work. So, you know, the fact that you guys have have designed this and you're really going through with it, talk me through kind of that early adoption phase that you found. Um, you know, let's, let's stick with brands for a minute um, and where they found success in utilizing this format. Yeah, sure. So I couldn't talk about the platform without uh, talking about our chief technology officer, uh, Dushin Odobasic, and our chief uh, executive officer, Mike Sherlambos. These guys are uh, really the brains uh, behind the tech. Mm. Uh, the story of the founding of the company is uh, really rooted in display advertising, frankly, uh, trying to create a new interactive media format Um in a display ad and the challenge that you just described here, even in, you know, 2023 of moving a 3d file, uh, on pretty sophisticated marketplaces, you can imagine back in uh, 2017, early 2018, nobody was publishing 3d on the web, or if you were doing it, you were using, uh, you know, a gaming engine and a high powered computer with tons of CPUs in order to process this thing in real time. Yep. And what these guys discovered were in an attempt to make a 3D asset work in a display ad, um, recognized uh, and created, invented a method with which to optimize these files for any web browser on any CMS and make sure that it can run in the browser uh, so that you don't need to rely on uh, an application or a dedicated computer, you know, running a gaming engine uh, that you could publish these to the web as lightweight formats. And 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 this is for those of us, you know, that, that think today. Um, people may be confused about why why we think that's a challenge. But if you go back to the early days of Web One, a, a JPEG was not a JPEG and was not a JPEG, and, <laughs> and a GIF was not a GIF. And you you had different, you know, like they. The standards around the, these formats, um, you know, were there, but they weren't actually enforced in any way, shape, or form, and computers weren't being as updated as often. So you ran into all these compliance issues that you know, Mac versus PC versus you know, some other things. You just ran into a lot of like it just didn't load correctly. It, it, it some things didn't load at all, even though they were supposed to be the same file format. And so now we've got the same issue because now suddenly there's all these different chains, there's all these different you know new types of browsers and, and interfaces and metaverses. Um, and what we find right off the bat is that we can say, look, we're, we want to build something in in uh, in Unity, and you know, it, in, in Unity, it should be. A, from there, it should be fine. You know, Blender to Unity, deploy. Um, and what we found is we worked with a lot of, of different studios on on the whales and a variety of other things. And they would send us the files, and they're just you got to rebuild them. 
you know, your local machine didn't, didn't accept the files. And so, you know, what, what you guys are doing is kind of standardizing this, making sure that they're accepted in a variety of different formats and that it's as simple as point and click open and, and there it works. Um, so it sounds easy, but it's, <laughs> it's yeah. you have an entire company trying to do this. Yeah. So these guys, you know, really unlocked that, uh, that tech in early 2018. And we had some critical innovation partners early on. Um, so Diageo, uh, you know, one of the world's largest liquor companies, uh, looking to digitize the uh, their glass bottles, the product uh, that they sell. And yeah, I'm going there for a specific reason, which is not only are the the challenges, the interoperability challenges you and I just discussed, but mater- specific materials. Uh, so glass, notoriously difficult uh, to have it look real in this new format? How can you depict uh, a translucent material inside of a a 2D screen, uh, let alone in augmented reality? So in working with our, these, I call them our innovation partners. I mean, because we were together helping to solve a problem, uh, which was how are we going to put glass into 3D and AR? And we start to recognize the opportunity to create new shaders, new glass shaders, new diamond shaders. Uh, and then that fast forward to um, some of the early successes uh, in working with jewelry brands. Hmm. So once we unlocked glass, the next challenge was diamonds. Uh, and so trying to create the most photorealistic uh, jewels that you possibly can, the refraction of each of the carrots, uh, you know, how do you refract the light that's actually in the room mm-hmm. uh, when you place the diamond into augmented reality? And again, all of that running in the browser without the need for uh, a Snapchat filter or an Instagram filter or any app. And I think that is what led to some of the early uh, early success with LVMH. So we were a part of the uh, Les Maison de Accelerator program, working with uh, LVMH, the world's largest luxury conglomerate, uh, there in Paris at Station F, working with the Maisons to basically digitize their products um, mm. and bring them into this new immersive world. You know, and 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 to me, I I look at the future of immersive technology as a little less of of Ready Player One. Where you're going to put on goggles and you're just going to go into this immersive, like you know, uh, dream per se that that doesn't really exist in, in the real world. And I think that I, I absolutely believe in it. I think it's going to happen. I've got you know every you name it. I've got every type of of VR goggle that exists floating around the office, and we've tried every single one of them. And I just I don't feel like we're even close. But when we start talking about AR. Um, and, and augmented reality opens up a whole new world because you don't have to have, you know, the Google Glass or any goggles. Like they work great on your phone. Um, you know, I tried on, on, on 3DM site for anyone that's sitting on the computer and wants to see what we're talking about. You can just go to, uh, 3DM.io, uh, and, and right on your home screen, you've got a, a, a Raymond Wells watch. Um, scan it with your, with your phones, uh, scan the QR, the QR code. Uh, with your phone, and you're instantly have a watch that's anywhere in your room. You can move it around and play with it, and it really showcases the technology well. So I get to play with that for a second, awesome. and that's where I get to is that there's a lot of times we we're spending so much time right now on this this immersive world um, from just like a hey gamification playing around, 
but but you've centered in on on the fact that there is utility and there is commerce to be had from this technology, and I think that's that's what's so interesting to me. Yeah, a couple of thoughts there. One, again, I just I, I feel very lucky uh, to have gone through the evolution that I did because I mm-hmm. I think understanding the pace of change from web one to web two, um, the pace of change within web two and what users, so being a marketer and really studying uh, target audiences of what's the community want? What are, what are people actually doing? They'll tell you one thing, uh, but in their day-to-day lives are actually doing something else that maybe they're not even able to describe. And what I mean by that is everyone is shopping on their phone and they're mm-hmm. swiping through 2D images, but nobody's saying to themselves, 2D images suck. You know, they don't see it as a problem, the problem to be solved. And I am here to say 2D images suck. Like that is the problem that uh, the moment you can, you know, move around uh, a chair in 3D and place it into your home and it is with the same level of effort required to swipe through a 2D image, I've now increased the experience exponentially while reducing the friction to purchase. So I solved a problem that folks didn't even know they had and created a better commerce experience along the way. And I think that's, to your point, is like once you see it, once you place that watch on your desk, it's really hard to unsee it. You you now have created magic right in front of somebody and it's becoming normal. People are comfortable now using filters. And I do give the platforms a lot of credit for the training of that behavior. But at the end of the day, I think brands, owners, and creators who are you know uh, creating NFTs who want to showcase that asset, how they want to showcase it, mm-hmm. they're gravitating to these immersive formats. Yeah, and and like I said, we can we can talk about the the the, the game, you know, like the whales, and you can, we can do a lot of complex things with these. But but the idea of you know, hey, I'd like to buy a product, and generally, let's let's talk about we'll just talk about Amazon. You've got pictures, and, and you may have a video. Um, that's great. Does the picture show every single corner of that electronics device you want to buy, or every single around? And they generally don't. And and too often, I find I'm trying to buy a special electronic, and I, there's a port. It's the the age old age old problem. Does it does it have the port USB-C, I need? Does it have the USB. connection I need? Well, yeah. What 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 is this? Where is it going? And and you know it, it becomes all about time. And at the end of the day, time is our most valuable asset. And so what what we are seeing here, and and 3D is trying to showcase, and and the whales behind are doing a, a terrible job of explaining. Um, but but what you have is that very quickly with just the swipe of, of your finger or your mouse, whatever the case is, you can spin the object around. You can see, you know, what it, where does the connection port come in? You can see, you know, what are the other buttons? And, and generally the other side is you can zoom in. Um, there may be, you know, some, nobody cares what the three buttons on that microwave say and really fine print, but that may be the difference between you buying or, or moving on to the next one and being able to kind of like spin it around and say, this is what I was looking for on the act on an actual product. Um, that, you know, if you're looking to convert sales, and I'm betting especially on jewelry, that's a big deal to see the, the the minute detail and be able to zoom in like that. Yeah, and it's so easy a six year old could do it. I mean, I think that's where I come back to the moment I put it in his hands. Um, you know, and and he is forever and always 
going to expect it to do that. He was t- trying to buy a Rubik's cube on Amazon the other day, and he was buying a specialty colored Rubik's cube. You know, it's not your typical uh, RGB colors there, but it was some. And he wanted to see what the color on the back of it was. And in the photos, it did not show all six sides of the Rubik's cube. Mm. And here's my six year old son who knows. It should be able to spin around, Dad. And he's right. It should be able to. There is zero reason why it can't. And I also think that's... A, you started to make this point with the VR, and I was making the the uh, the point as well about the pace of change. I think it's why I'm so focused in on that phone and that experience, because these immersive experiences are happening on that computer in your pocket. Uh, and I don't want to spend eight hours of my day with a headset on. Um, I, I, I don't think that's where it's going to be. And I think... We, we, we could have saved Zuckerberg $10 billion <laughs> yeah. if he had just asked us. It's a lot of time and money Absolutely to not. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I do think there is a time and place for that. And I think uh, it, it might be the equivalent of sitting down to watch a movie. You know, you're not always watching a two-hour movie, but sometimes you are. Sometimes you want that experience or sporting events. I could see uh, that added layer of uh, immersiveness. Yeah, but this would be great. This would be great if we could get adoption on airplanes. I just, I just spent the last few days flying around all over the place, and and this would have been a nicer experience um, than than the the laptop or the iPad to watch a movie. But to be clear, nobody wants to drag this on a plane. Um, it's big, it's heavy, it's huge, and the battery doesn't even last that long. So it's not even right for that type of uh, technology. I want to connect some of the tech that we talked about to to the Web3 uh, piece of the conversation as well, just because we're talking about these immersive experiences, like how, do, how does all this lead 3Dium into the world of NFTs and metaverses and decentral, other decentralized platforms, etc. Um, for me started uh well summer of of nft summer uh crypto twitter jumping in the twitter spaces um hearing and understanding what was happening in terms of the intellectual property uh and nike's acquisition of artifact me watching the uh rothschild case from another luxury retailer uh talking about who owns the ip and here we are with um, plenty of leather handbags in 3D and AR and luxury watches that uh, are available as digital twins. And I recognized the opportunity to, uh, when those assets are on chain and brands can maintain provenance mm-hmm. and brands can uh, facilitate uh, aftermarket sales and authenticate their products. The the possibilities for 3D as the data carrier are amazing. Uh, I see no reason that everything you buy has a digital equivalent um, because and people, you know, well, why would I want that lamp? to have a, a digital twin. Well, I don't know, but maybe you're setting up your game in Roblox and when you log in with your wallet, all of your lighting is there, right? All of your lamps show up because you've bought them and you have yeah. the digital twin and they're in your wallet and those assets can now have a digital representation inside of these virtual environments. 
Um, yeah, and I think it, it makes a ton of sense. And, and you know, real quick, I want to talk about how we convert these uh, to 3D because I've, sure. I've seen the process done a couple different ways. Uh, generally, there's the full CAD, you know, uh, you got to be a, a designer. Um, then you've got the, the big multi-camera crazy systems. You, you put the put the watch or the diamond in a little thing. It spins it around, takes a thousand pictures of it, and then fills in the blanks. Um, but, but, you know, how are you guys uh, manage, managing that digitization? A number of ways, uh, and it has evolved over the years as the technology has evolved. So initially, uh, starting with CAD files, so production files typically used, they're going to provide the most precise geometry, but mm-hmm. but not provide the materials. So when I talked about the kind of innovations there around glass and diamonds, apply that to wood and fabrics and cloth, um, and the CAD really serving as the backbone of the asset itself, uh, and the magic of making it look photorealistic comes with the materials. Uh, that's one way to do it, probably the most straightforward way. Uh, over the years, we've also developed our own AI uh, to facilitate a scanner, uh, an iPhone scanner hmm. uh, available in iOS and in uh, Google Play. Unlimited 3D is the name of the scanner, and you can upload somewhere between 30 and 60 still images or a 60-second video. Um, you can doesn't need to be on any kind of fancy background or lighting box or carousel, as you described, uh, but upload those pictures from uh, all of the different angles from above, and uh, in approximately three to five minutes, it will create the geometry of the object and layer the photos back onto the geometry as a 3D asset inside of your account, completely automated. Wow. It's not it's not perfect. Um, it gets probably, I'd say, 80% of the job done in terms of, you know, if you're going to have a Raymond Weil watch and there are, uh, you know, exquisite details in the leather or within the, uh, the face of the watch, the, the marble or the, uh, the oyster shell in the background there, uh, that we will bring in a 3D modeler to clean up. Uh, the, the magic there is that once you create a material, you can imagine something like a Tiffany's blue box. Uh, once you have that Tiffany's blue box and you understand the shade and the material of the cardboard, uh, you can replicate it a thousand, a hundred thousand, two hundred thousand times uh, with precise uh, quality control over those materials. That's amazing. Um, if you wouldn't mind, walk me through some of the big, the bigger successes you've had. Um, where there was just, you know, uh, you know, Hey, this is the, the immediately the client was happy. Um, they saw a good response from it, you know, just love to kind of hear what a couple of those are. And, and if you don't mind, you know, maybe one or two that, that just the technology wasn't there yet or, or the client's, um, you know, use case wasn't, wasn't fully evolved would be great as well. Yeah, sure. So one of the, probably my favorite case study that we've done is with Carmina Shoemaker. Uh, so Carmina Shoemaker.com, uh, beautiful men's loafers, women's shoes. They are running the entire shoe configurator within their e-commerce site uh, on the backbone um, of 3DM's engine. So their Mm. entire e-commerce site, I call it the second most powerful 3D configurator in the world, second only to Nike. Uh, Nike ID, uh, what they've done with the Nike Air Max customizer, they have a whole team and army inside of Nike building this. We have an open source, uh, or well, we have a technology that we can bring to any brand. Mm. Um, anyway, we built 1.2 million permutations of this Carmina shoe. Uh, 
you can customize the eyelets, the shoelaces, the sole, the inside. You can apply the textures to every layer of the shoe. This kind of gets back to that tech uh, that I was describing earlier in that we did not have to produce 1.2 million versions of a 3D asset. Um, we simply needed to understand all of the permutations of the materials and the combinations available within their business logic. So maybe you can't buy the brown shoes with the red laces. Okay, great. You guys already have that business logic inside of your uh, your CPQ backend, your configure price quote, whatever they're mm-hmm. running you know, from a pricing uh, uh, in the backend of their e-commerce. We, headless API, can plug into that existing business logic, pull in the components of the shoe, including the pricing, um, we can pull in supply levels if you're out of the red laces so that it just simply won't show them. And we don't have to rebuild any of the backend e-commerce. We simply create every permutation of the shoe in real time. I, I, I'm going to tell you, anyone who's listening, I don't care if you're into shoes or not. Um, They're beautiful. <laughs> CarminaShoemaker.com. And you just go to custom at, while literally while Mike was just explaining this, I went there, I've already customized a, a pair of shoes um, in the most horrible way possible, but <laughs> it's fluid. It, it loads extremely fast and exactly what you know, you're saying, you can zoom in and look at the, 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 the stitching very closely. You can see uh, the details and, and it's there, there was no applets that had to load. It's not a, you know, didn't ask for Java to be updated. Um, save it, share it. So, I mean, this is this is this is a very good e-commerce um, example, and I know that that Nike probably spent quite a bit much more yeah. uh, to make theirs work. And this is this is right here, and I didn't know I could have alligator tips on my boots, uh, but this is fabulous. <laughs> so, um, marketing for e-commerce did uh, an actual analytics case study on this particular. Uh, Uh, installation here and found that Carmina increased its sales by 25% with the implementation of the customizer. Wow. Um, They had uh, 25% of their total sales uh, coming through that customizer and about uh, 73% of that happening on desktop, about 27% of those conversions happening on mobile. Uh, You can just imagine, you know, you're, you're providing something for somebody to do to engage with. And people talk about engagement metrics. Well, what better way to engage somebody than to have them play with it, configure it, change the colors, customize it. Uh, so this was, you know, we're really proud of, of this one. Um, and it's, uh, it's a beautiful, <laughs> it's a beautiful I, pair I, of shoes. I'm, I'm, I, so far I've been <laughs> able to get to up to $4,500 for a pair of boots um, <laughs> nice. based on clicking in this. So it, it, it's repricing it as you go uh, real quick. So so that's a huge, you know, again, showcase of what you're doing, but this is a very web two, um, web, web two use case. Now yep. what you're saying is customize your boots, um, you're buying them. So you've, you've made this, this God awful thing that I've made here and, uh, we'll, we'll, I'll send a screenshot so we can put it up on the screen. Um, but you, you've, you've customized it, you order it. And not only can you order it and get the physical version, but that custom, you know, 3d, like fine, stick it in your, in your digital wallet. You don't know, um, when, avi- when you may have an avatar that wants to wear these, these hideous, uh, pony and alligator boots that I've made. <laughs> um, and, and so I think that the concept of it's, it, it's here, it's, it's, you can manage it today. We don't have to come back later and, you know, go, Hey, what do we want to do with the thousand, 10,000 people that ordered them a year ago? Should we, should we send them to them? Should we try to distribute them? I, I think that you've got the technology right here on that showcases, um, 
to, you can start doing this today. We may not know the utility right now, but you can start pushing these things out into wallets. Absolutely. Um, I think in the Web3 space, one example, and this might get to the the example that we learned a lot from, uh, is the way I'll phrase that. Um, we did an NFT drop with ASICs using the 3D shoe. This was supposed to be during the 2020 uh, summer games that were uh, rescheduled. So ASICs was uh, trying to run a, a the Sunrise collection uh, in partnership with an artist as an NFT drop. Uh, we created the 3D asset, um, the digital twin of these MetaRacer shoes. When I say we learned a lot from it, you know, ASICs doesn't get a lot of a ton of credit for that NFT drop because they were so, so early. Um, I mean, they beat Adidas, they beat Nike. Um, it's the, the, I see you typing in there. It's the, uh, uh, the MetaRacer uh, NFT drop. And I, I just think, I, I'd say the learnings from it are actually in a good way, which is 3DM and my team understood that if we were going to help usher brands into Web3, uh, we needed to understand the mechanics ourselves, that uh, we were not willing to uh, rush any brand just because they had a cool asset into mm-hmm. an NFT drop if there wasn't a long-term plan for how to reward the community, how to engage the community, how to use the IP. Um, and that's probably the time we started thinking about our latest endeavor um, the Web3 product from 3DM, if you will, which is versatile.io, uh, VRSTL.io. And what we're doing is building and turning that entire configuration of a 3D asset to the community. Hmm. Anybody with a, a PFP project who wants to come and create a hoodie, a pair of pants, a hat, a shirt, uh, and I, when I say customize it, I don't mean just putting your logo on it. I mean decorating it, uploading a mid-journey stable diffusion graphic that you prompted in AI and f- customizing every inch of your outfit, immediately being able to mint it on any chain and take that asset as a wearable on your avatar into any metaverse. Wow. So take that same approach that I described early on, with 3DM's approach to Web2 commerce and, and our ability to publish these assets across multiple channels, uh, maintain consistency and quality over those, now take that, we're taking that same approach to how, how are these assets going to show up in Decentraland? What are they going to look like in Sandbox? What do they look like in the other side, in an Unreal Engine environment, in a Unity gaming environment? Um inside of spatial on avatars and our ability to take from a single asset and optimize and publish across all of those platforms while minting it on any chain. Uh, Nobody else is doing this right now. We are, I am confident in saying there's a lot of people trying to do it. And as a, somebody who's been trying to do it for two years, I feel like we are really unlocking a massive uh, innovation in Mm -hmm. the ability to move these assets both on chain and create this interoperability between the metaverses. I love that. 
Mike, this has really been an amazing conversation. I, I think that you know what I've what I've taken away from this is is number one, you can be have a very niche um, view on on the market. You know, have a very niche product, which is which is just three D objects. Um, you know, I, I don't mean to downplay what you guys are doing, but at, at the end of the day, you, you're taking an, an asset that needs to be deployed either into a web two or web three space, and you're making it almost a no code deployment. Um, and that's massive because I can tell you each and every one of these whales swimming behind us requires a, devel- a developer um, as well as a, a highly professional 3D artist to build, manipulate, and then deploy. Um, so <laughs> and my cost my, my cost per deployment is quite high compared to you You have people that are making shoes, making hoodies, making all sorts of things uh, and, and deploying them to either a Web 2 or Web 3 space. So I absolutely see the value of the technology. And, and I know it's the future, whether you believe in XR, uh, AR, or VR, like 3D is coming. And we heard... We heard something very interesting um, from Alvin, uh, one from uh, HTC, and that was quite simply that that photorealistic um, is is where we need to get. But the idea that you can capture with a video camera and have it just be enough to zoom all the way in is not correct. You have to have that that ability um, to capture with a camera and then allowing, um, as, as you said, 3D designers, developers to fill in the blanks so you can zoom into that that microscopic level and not lose a bunch of detail. And, and so automatically you guys are going to win just because you have the ability not just to capture, but manipulate prior to deployment. Um, you're in the space. This is what you guys do full time. Talk to me about just kind of your thoughts over the next few years, where where you think immersive technologies um, or just Web three overall are going. Yeah, thank you again. I hope it has been a fun conversation. You can hear the excitement in my voice. I love what we are doing uh, on the cutting edge of technology and and really working out loud as a team. You know, uh, kind of hoping that our work shows for itself and uh, doing cool stuff on the internet. My my deep thoughts. Really, I've been forming um, over the last 18 months or so in terms of intellectual property ownership in the metaverse. As I continue to dive into, you know, what it means to own a digital asset and mm-hmm. to have NFTs in my wallet, I'm watching the wallet wars happen. I'm watching what Coinbase is doing. I'm watching the regulators uh, to get back to that that piece of it as well. So I feel like I've got a really macro bird's eye view of what it's going to take to both move brands towards web three and for I'd say native web three projects to understand the frameworks that brands have to work under. Uh, And I think it's a little bit of meeting somewhere in the middle. Uh, You're seeing a lot of collaborations right now, a lot of overlaps, brands looking for, uh, you know, blue chip NFT projects to work with and blue chip NFT projects working, looking for brands to work with. We've got Metaverse Fashion Week happening, you know, in the next couple of weeks where you've got Tommy Hilfiger and DKNY uh, and Clark's Shoe Company coming into Decentraland and Spatial. My, the point of all of that, the deep thoughts are, I think the, the idea of owning a digital asset is becoming more normalized uh, we won't call them NFTs. I think, you know, you watch what Starbucks Odyssey program and what Adam Brotman has built over there. They're not calling them NFTs. These are digital uh, collectibles or these are, you know, a rewards mechanism. People understand Starbucks rewards. It's easy. The friction isn't there. You're not worrying about a wallet and NFTs. All of that is that when you buy something on Amazon, today 
you are buying a digital picture. You're looking at photos of that thing, that watch, that bottle of shampoo, whatever it is that you're buying. It's a picture of it and you trust it and you click it and you buy it. And that thing shows up at your front door, but it has no other utility. And the moment that you can bring digital ownership of that asset so that now when I buy that watch on Amazon and it shows up at my front door, I want to be able to log in to my favorite metaverse platform and my avatar is wearing that watch. I can wear it instantly in its digital form. I can virtually try it on in augmented reality. Why? Because I own it. Why can't I do that? I own it. It's mine. I bought it. I want to take it with me wherever I go. When I walk out the front door, I can wear it in real life. And when I'm on my Zoom, I want it to show up on my wrist uh, as a virtual version. So ownership is changing. Uh, 3D augmented reality and the convergence with NFTs and Web3 are driving that change. You know, and I think the idea is, you know, well, the metaverse, no metaverse is one or even come close to it. To me, the the concept in, is of having these digital twins, you know, uh, may not always make sense to people, but, you know, it, it's something like a watch. Or, or let's say a car, but we'll we'll take the watch for example. Um, I've been around a lot of you know insane watch collectors, and what they do is they they pull out their phone, they go to their little folder, and then they show you pictures. And they're they're always scrolling through and they're looking at these pictures of the watches, and you're like, that's great, dude. That's like a picture of a thing, and you really can't understand like you know these, some of these watches are hundreds of thousands of dollars, and you really don't get a sense of like what this is. Now I have seen somebody who had a digital twin of uh, they purposely had it made of one of their cars um, from scratch, completely had it had it built, and they were able to showcase this. And let me tell you, it was a much more impressive to look on his phone and be able to like spin his car around with his, um, you know, with all the customizations and, and specs on there. <clears throat> and so I think that's a lot of what we're going to see as well, is that you're not going to go to your photo library, you're going to go to your wallet and show off your, right. your assets, whether that's in person or, or you know, over, over uh, Zoom or chat. Absolutely. And you hear about, again, I come back to sort of the almost anthropological look at human behavior, but the flex culture, you know, mm-hmm. what did yeah. social media drive, but people wanting to show off their Ferrari, whether it was theirs or not in the background. And now I can prove that yeah. it's mine and that I own it and that I bought it. Uh, I, I mean, it, it makes so much sense to me from a pure human behavior perspective. Yeah, no, I love that. I love that. <clears throat> Why Wills, um, this has been a fabulous conversation about, about 3DM. Mike, um, where's the best place for people to find you? You have a lot of products and a lot of websites. Is there one that kind of lays them all out for us? Yeah, 3DM.io is going to be the best place uh, to see and experience those 3D and AR examples uh, under the products tab. It sort of goes through some of the things that I talked about, including the scanner, some of the configurator options, uh, and as well as the new versatile.io Web3 product. Uh, so, that's the best place to check out 3DM. I'm at Mike Toner on Twitter. That's my favorite place. So uh, follow and DM me if you have any questions. Fabulous, fabulous. Why, Wells? This is Mike from 3DM. Uh, really, this is one of those ones I'm going to tell you, you all have homework assignments. Go check it out. Play on their site because it really is fun. Um, and a couple other things we'll make sure is in the show notes underneath uh, this listing is a, a couple of the other sites that, that Mike was mentioning because it's a really fun experience. There's nothing you got to download, nothing you got to purchase, um, but you really get a, a good idea of, of where things are going and the adoption that can happen today. Uh, with that, Why, Wells? Uh, see you next time. 
Why Whales was founded in 2021 by Jay Steinbeck, a passionate entrepreneur and business owner with the purpose of bringing YPO and YNG members together in the cryptoverse. Why Whales is a collaborative and confidential community centered around cryptocurrencies and blockchain technology, an exclusive crypto hub of more than 600 members. To be notified when we release new content, please subscribe to our show in your preferred listening app. For more information, visit www.ywhales.com. YWales is not affiliated with YPO, but at this time only allow for YPO, YPO Gold, and YNG members due to privacy and confidentiality. Support and production for today's episode was done by TruthWork Media. Nothing in the podcast constitutes professional and or financial advice, nor does any information on the podcast constitute a comprehensive or complete statement of the matters discussed or the law relating thereto.